Let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 8. If you have them, if you don't, that's cool. Just steal somebody's next to you, or it'll come up on the screen in a moment. We're going to read Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to the end of verse 30. I've called this message the most important question. Verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? This is two and a half years in of them spending time with Jesus every day. Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we thank you that we get to worship you in song. And now, Lord, we thank you that we get to worship you in the gift of preaching and listening. Lord, would we gather around your word today, and would these dear people not primarily hear my voice? Lord, I ask you, would they hear your voice? Would you open eyes to be able to see you? It's a miracle, and you can do it. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, in all of our lives... There are many important questions, aren't there? Many things that happen, many things that we have to figure out. What should I do for a living? There's hundreds and thousands of jobs. So which one shall I pick? What shall I do? Where should I live and give my life to? Now with planes, we can live more or less anywhere in the world. And so where shall I pick to actually invest my life and give my life to? Whom should I marry? If indeed I should get married at all. And if I do get married, then when? And what about kids? When's a good time to have kids? If so, how many? Like, is three too many? Is four too many? Five definitely is too many, by the way. (laughs) What about money? How are we going to afford to live? How are we going to afford to invest in the future? How do we invest money at all to be able to make things work? And to be honest, what am I going to do with my life anyways? What do I want to do with my life? With thousands of options around the world, what do I want to actually give my life to? In life, there are so many important questions that we're all faced with. And yet it's here in this verse, chapter 8, verse 29, that Jesus very deliberately points his disciples, and indeed then us, to the most important question of all. The question that changes everything in our lives. The questions in which our very lives now and our eternal destinations rest upon our answer too. And he looks the disciples in their eye and effectively us as well in verse 29 and says, But who do you say that I am? And it's a question that Mark has been building us towards ever since the start of the book. It's what actually the book is all about. And right at the start of the Gospel of Mark, very quickly, the question that comes to people's minds is, who is this? Who is this guy? He performs miracles, he rebukes demons out of people, and they leave. He teaches with such authority. Who is this man? And for eight chapters, there's been questions over who is it? And yet Jesus 
now pins his 12 disciples as he walks along the road with them. He says, all right, two and a half years in, it's time for me to ask you. Verse 28, who do people say that I am? All these crowds that come around all the time. You must be talking to them. Who do they say that I am? Well, Lord, you know, John the Baptist. Some people think you're John the Baptist reincarnated. Other people, maybe Elijah, that Elijah is reincarnated, and that's you. Some people just think you're a great prophet. You know, like Moses or one of the great ones of the Old Testament. You're just another one in the list of those. And then he says to him, but who do you say that I am? You know me best. And he says, and, the, and Peter then answers on behalf of all of the disciples, in the way that Peter only can, very quickly and spontaneously, I'll tell you who you are. You are the Christ. You're the King, the Anointed One, the Messiah that's been promised from of old, the one who will bring salvation and vindicate the righteous and who will vindicate and judge the wicked as well, the one who will bring restoration and blessing to your people. You're the one that all the Holy Scriptures have talked about for centuries after centuries after centuries. You are the Christ. And Jesus in that moment commends Peter. It says in the Gospel of Matthew that he commends him because he is right. It's taken two and a half years. No one's seen it. And yet Peter in the moment says, you're the Christ. You're the Son of God, the Messiah that we've been waiting for. And Jesus commends him because for the first time in the Gospel of Mark, somebody's got it right. That's exactly who I am. I'm the Christ, the King, the Messiah, the Son of God. And that's why these verses mark like the pinnacle of the gospel of Mark. It's the climactic midpoint of the entire gospel. After this moment, for those of you that are in Sovereign Grace, after this moment, the preaching is going to change because the gospel of Mark changes. For the first half, Mark's been trying to present to us through claims that this is the Christ. Now Peter tells him, you are the Christ. And from here on after, Mark is no longer trying to prove that Jesus is the Christ. He's explaining to us what the Christ is going to do. How he's going to live as the Messiah. What he's actually come to do as the anointed one of the Lord. It's the climactic midpoint of the book because of that. But it's also the climactic midpoint of the book because it's one of the moments in the book, I think, where Mark picks up his eyes... And helps reveal to us that this story isn't just here so that we can learn historically what happened. But it's here to examine all of us as well. And implied in this question, I think, as Mark scribes it on the papyri, is not just when Jesus asked Peter, but who do you say that I am? It's understanding that Mark is actually holding this up to us to, in effect, ask this question of us today. So who do you say that he is. This is who Peter said he is. But who do you say that he is? Having examined the evidence of chapters 1 through 8, who do you believe he is? And I submit to you, there's no more important question that anybody can ever ask you. You know, there's a whole load of ideas going out there around not only Australia, but obviously in England and everywhere else in the world, about who Jesus really was. And if I was to take a microphone into Hornsby Town Centre, which could be fun, could be scary, but it would be fun to just say, hey, who do you think Jesus is? I reckon you'd get some pretty cool answers, and you'd get probably pretty similar answers. 
Many people would probably say, hey, you know, he's, he's a great moral teacher. He was a really good teacher. I mean, so much of Western civilization is based upon what he taught and what he said, particularly our legal system. So that's what he is. He was just a good teacher. Some people might say, well, I think he was a model of true spirituality. He showed us what love is. He showed us how to care for people. He showed us how to love people. Other people would say, well, I know who Jesus is. He, he was a prophet. He was a prophet like Moses or Elijah or Buddha or Confucius or Muhammad. Jesus just numbers among all of those. And yet Jesus always claimed to be far more than that. He never claimed to be a good moral teacher. He never claimed to be a model of true spirituality. He never claimed to be a prophet. He claimed to be God. He said that to have seen him was to have seen God. He said to receive him was to receive God. He says to have welcomed him was to have welcomed God. In, in Mark chapter 2, we have this great story of the paralytic. It's one of the stories that we, we all know because we all get taught at school minimally, where the paralyzed guy, his friends dig through the ceiling and lower him down. You know the one? And this paralyzed guy, Jesus' first words to him, which must have shocked the guy, is, hey, you know, nice to see you. Your sins are forgiven. You know, if I'm a paralyzed guy, I'm thinking, thanks for that, but I would like to be able to walk. You know, but he goes first for the fact that your sins are forgiven. The reason why he said that is because the Pharisees and scribes are in the room, and they're spitting chips at this point going, how dare you do that? How dare you forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. That's the point. So Jesus says, yeah, only God can forgive sins. And so you know that I am he. Take up your bed and walk. And the paralyzed guy rolls up his bed and walks out the room. Jesus, both directly and by implication, claimed to be God many, many times. And yet, just in case you need to call the white coats on me, getting concerned about me, just because someone claims to be God doesn't make them God. True? I've seen it on ABC and you know, SBS, different programs about weirdos claiming to be God. Just because somebody claims to be God doesn't make them God. You know, one of the shows I used to like watching in the UK, <laughs> it's a bit of a confession really, was a show called Trisha. I hope it never got here. Did it ever get here? Did it ever, was it ever in Australia? Thank goodness for that. But I liked it, right? It was this show, Trisha, and she would just get these people on there and interview these people, and it was just, it minimally, it was entertaining for my small mind. And I remember one occasion, she had these people on there that thought, totally thought, were convinced that they were people from the past. And so this guy comes out dressed as Elvis because he thinks full on he's Elvis. This guy comes out as King, King Henry VIII. He's totally convinced that he is King Henry VIII. And then Marilyn Monroe comes out. And quickly you discover, as, you as she's chatting to them, that these guys, they totally think they are these people, but they are nutjobs. They are total lunatics. And so the crowd goes from laughing at them to being a bit like uncomfortable with, oh, this is weird that these guys need to be in a hospital, and yet we're laughing at them. Just because somebody claims to be somebody doesn't make them that somebody. Just because Jesus claims to be God doesn't make him God. C.S. Lewis, the great author of the Chronicles of Narnia, gives us then these options for who Jesus really was. He says, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was 
and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Yet the more I've thought about this, the more I've realized this is true. Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is the Lord. Some people say, no, I think he was a great moral teacher. Okay, fine. But he was a great moral teacher who was either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. Well, I just think he was a prophet. Okay, well, he was a prophet who was either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord, because he claimed to be the Lord. He claimed to be God. He either was not God, and he knew it, in which case he just lied to everybody all the time, pretending to be somebody who wasn't, or he was not God, and he didn't know it, like those people on Trisha, He's a lunatic, or he's God. He was claiming to be exactly who he really is, and he is the Lord. And so this morning, I want to ask the question that really Mark asks of us, of who do you say that he is? And I want us to examine then the claims of Mark chapters 1 through 8 so that you can make your decision, so that you can decide on the most important question of all. And there's five things that Mark gives to us then in these opening chapters to present to us the reality that he believes Jesus is the Christ, the King, the Son of God. Here's the first piece of evidence. Then. Number one, his works. The works of Jesus Christ. You know, In his lifetime, Jesus performed literally hundreds of miracles claiming that these were proof, as John 10.38 says, that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. He wasn't doing all these miracles just because he was a nice guy, thought it'd be a pretty fun thing to do before he died. He was doing these miracles to show that I'm God. Only God can do these things, and I'm showing to you and proving to you that I am He. And Mark then carefully picks out of these hundreds of miracles in chapters 1 through 8, certain miracles to show us that this is who Jesus of Nazareth is. He's the Christ. He's the king. He's God. And so in Mark chapter 1, we see Jesus' authority over demons. We see Jesus teaching in a synagogue, just like this. People are looking on. We've sang a few songs. They're going to hear teaching. Jesus is teaching away. And this dude, which would be really awkward if you can imagine it in real life, this dude in the back row suddenly stands up. He starts foaming at the mouth. He's demonized and starts abusing and shouting at Jesus. I mean, imagine how awkward that would be. It would be slightly awkward. But what's even more awkward is Jesus says, be quiet, and he rebukes the demon from this man. This man falls to the floor, starts screaming, gnashing of teeth, foaming at the mouth, and the demon leaves. Man, I'll be talking about that over lunch and dinner and probably all next week. That's a big moment in what takes place. And yet Jesus is showing he has the authority even over the demonic. We see it in chapter 5 as well. Jesus is rocking over the other side of the lake with the disciples. They get off the boat. This naked guy who is totally mad because he's so demonized runs up to Jesus and the disciples, falls himself on the floor, recognizes who Jesus is, and begs for mercy. This is a man who's been banished right up the top of the hill to live in the graveyard because he's driving everybody crazy and he's unsafe. And yet this man runs to Jesus and begs for mercy. And Jesus in that moment rebukes those demons, thousands of them, which is why they were called a legion. 
takes them out of him, puts them in the pigs, and the pigs die. But this man comes back to his right mind and starts telling everybody what Jesus has done for him. And we see the same in chapter 7 with the Syrophoenician woman's daughter. She comes in, falls at Jesus' feet, begging for mercy for her daughter. And Jesus says, hey, you can, you can go. I've rebuked the demon. She's healed. And as this woman goes back to her little girl, she, defines, she, she discerns that her young girl is now in right mind. The demon has left her. Mark's showing us his authority over demons. Nothing can stand against Jesus Christ. Also, his authority over sickness. We see it loads of times. In chapter 2, Jesus healing the paralytic, a man who cannot walk, and yet the very bed that he's lowered down into the room with, he then stands up, picks it up, rolls it, and leaves with it under his arm. Chapter 3, the man with a withered hand. Jesus touches his hand, and in a moment, his hand is stretched out and fully restored. Chapter 5, Jesus heals a woman with an issue of blood. Chapter 6, Jesus heals the sick in Gennesaret. Hundreds of people that are running around the lake to be with him. They've all heard he's in town. Everybody is gathering everybody they've ever met who is sick. Okay, there's no Medicare. If your kid is sick, they're going to die. A healer is in town. I'm going. I'm going. Get the bags. Get the child. I'm running after him. That's what they did in their thousands. And Jesus prays for each and every one of them, and each and every one of them is healed of their diseases. Chapter 7, Jesus heals a deaf man with a speech impediment. He can't hear. He can't speak properly. Jesus touches his tongue and his ears, and he leaves hearing correctly and speaking normally. In chapter 8, he lays his hands on a blind man, and this man leaves that room that day with his sight fully restored. Authority over demons, authority over sickness, authority over nature. Chapter 4, we see Jesus calming a storm. Many of his disciples, which you may or may not know, were fishermen. Well, you know, I've seen it on TV, the, you know, the Discovery Channel, when you've got the, what is it like the trawler men and all that? That's a great show. You know, and you just see, realize these men are hard. You know, they are hardened people. Well, these same dudes are in the boat with Jesus in this moment, and they're crying like babies because they think they're going to die. Okay? This is a ferocious storm is going on. They wake up Jesus, who's managing to sleep through this horrendous storm, and they say, do you not care about us? And Jesus just sits up, looks out of the storm, peace, be still. And the storm dies down. Even nature responds to Jesus. Chapter 6, we see him feeding the 5,000. Just a few loaves, a few fish, prays for them. Feeds 5,000 people, has 12 baskets left over. Later on that night, he walks on water to get into the disciples' boat. In chapter 8, we see him feeding the 4,000. Again, just a few loaves, a few fish. Feeds the 4,000, seven large baskets left over. And then in chapter 7 of the Gospel of Mark, we see the Savior's authority over death as well. As he heals Jairus' daughter, a leader of the synagogue comes to him. His daughter is dying. The servant rushes out and says, Lord, there's no need. She's dead. And Jesus walks in the room and says, Nah, she's just sleeping. That's a kind way of saying, she's dead. And he raises her up, takes her hand, and gives her life back. Time and time again, Mark is showing us his authority over demons, his sickness, over nature and death. And so one of the things we all have to grapple with then is simply this. 
Are they the works of a liar or a lunatic? Or are they the works of the Lord? The one who he always claimed to be. The one who he already always said he was. Number two, his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. In Genesis 3.15, there's this wonderful prophecy over Satan who originally cursed, originally deceived Adam and Eve into sinning in the first place. And God curses Satan and says, listen, one will come, and although you will bruise his heel, he will crush your head. And for the rest of the Old Testament, although it can appear just like loads of random stories, actually it's just one story. It's just one story about who the serpent crusher is going to be. Who is this one going to be? Who is going to kill Satan? Who is this one going to be who's going to put all things to right? Who is this one going to be who's going to get us back into the garden, get us back into spending time with God the Father, who we were made to be with? Who is this serpent crusher going to be? And throughout the Old Testament, there are hundreds of prophecies all pointing to the serpent crusher. And what's amazing about the Gospels is that you realize Jesus fulfills every last one of them. Wilbur Smith, an American theologian, says it as follows. He says, The ancient world had many different devices for determining the future, known as divination. But not in the entire range of Greek and Latin literature, even though they use the words prophet and prophecy, can we find any real specific prophecy of a great historic event to come in the distant future, nor any prophecy of a saviour to arrive in the human race. Mohammedanism cannot point to any prophecies of the coming of Mohammed uttered hundreds of years before his birth. Neither can the founders of any cult in this country rightly identify any ancient text specifically foretelling their appearance. Yet Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies spoken by different voices over 500 years. 29 prophecies were fulfilled in a single day on the day he died. Jesus could have been a clever con man who deliberately set out to fulfill these prophecies in order to show that he was the Messiah foretold in the Old Testament. But the sheer number of them would have made it difficult. He would have had no control over many of the events. For example, the exact manner of his death was foretold in the Old Testament in Isaiah 53 and burial and even the place of his birth in Micah 5, verse 2. And one's birth and death, with all due respect, are difficult things to organize. Kind of got a point. 300 prophecies over 500 years, 29 death-related, and yet Jesus fulfills every last one of them to the letter. So in Isaiah 40, a prophecy that took place hundreds of years before Jesus arrived, Isaiah prophesies of how God will send a messenger before the Christ who will prepare the way. It says, A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And then in Mark chapter 1, we're introduced to this wild guy called John the Baptist, who spent his entire life out in the wilderness calling the Jews to him so that they may be baptized in the baptism of repentance. And he said his whole role was to prepare the paths for the way of the Lord. And the Jews came out to him in their thousands. This guy was incredibly popular. And then this guy, John the Baptist, has the distinct privilege of being the final Old Testament prophet 
Because he not only points to one who is to come in the future, he points right at Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God, the one who comes to take away the sin of the world. The last of the Old Testament prophets was him. He was prophesied about in the book of Isaiah, and then he stands there and points at Jesus, having prepared the path for Jesus, saying, This is him. Psalm 23, a psalm that many of us know, the Good Shepherd Psalm. One, how we realize the Good Shepherd is the Lord, a God who cares for his sheep, the one who makes his sheep lie down in green pastures and restores their soul. But in Mark chapter 6, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, we often hear this story laid out and it's talked about in lots of ways. And you think, this is so cool. It's, it's so interesting. You know, Jesus gets lots of food and feeds lots of people. They go home. They've all had a lovely time. Nice. It's way more than that. Because Mark reports to us that Jesus said these words. They are like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus felt for this crowd because he's aware, you're like sheep without a shepherd. And then what does he get them to do? He makes them lie down in green pastures. Mark deliberately tells us they're on the green fields. And Jesus gets them to lie down in the green pastures. Why? Because he's going to restore their soul. He's going to feed them. Not only this bread this day, but he wants to give them the gift of life. And then in Mark chapter 6, verse 48, we see Jesus walking on water. It's a pretty cool story, even by itself, as Jesus walks on water. But it alludes to something in the Old Testament, because in Job chapter 9, verse 7, Job tells us only God can trample on the waves of the sea. And in Mark chapter 6, Jesus tramples on the waves of the sea before he gets into the boat with them. Time and time again through the Gospels, we're seeing Old Testament narrative come to reality. And so one of the things we've got to bottom out then is are these the prophetic fulfillments of a liar or a lunatic? Are these the prophetic fulfillments of the one who is actually God? The one who he always claimed to be. Then number three, there's his character. You know, Gandhi... One said this, he said, I don't like you Christians, thanks very much, I don't like you Christians, but I do like your Christ. And the reason why he said that was because he really respected and appreciated and liked the character of Jesus Christ. And Jesus did have incredible character. Throughout Mark's gospel, we see Jesus' character implied throughout. Throughout Mark's gospel, we see Jesus with crowds, and these aren't always great crowds, okay? You know, we think if somebody's got a crowd, they've got a great following, they must be famous. Not necessarily. These crowds were coming to Jesus, not to try and cheer Jesus on. These crowds were coming to Jesus to try and get stuff out of him. They wanted to be healed. They get healed, thanks very much, we're off. They don't want to find out who Jesus is. They don't really care about Jesus. They don't really want to hear his teaching. I just want to get healed. I'm struggling. I've got things going on in my life. Help me. And then we're going. And yet Jesus, time and time again, looks at them with compassion, even though he knows they're not there for the right motives. And heals them anyway. Because they're like sheep without a shepherd. He wants to care for them. Now, if there was a group of people coming to me with false motives, I'd go, eh, thanks very much, I'm off. Not so with Jesus. Day after day after day, he kept going to them, knowing they're there for the wrong reasons. 
but wanted to show compassion of them. You know, all the way through the Gospel of Mark, we see the disciples playing the role of the village idiots. I mean, all the way through. They're doing things and saying things that you think, are you serious? They're saying things and doing things that you think, oh, this is cringeworthy. If this was in a movie, you would be laughing at different points about what they're doing. Jesus tells them to do things. They're not listening. At the start of chapter 8, there's this moment where they're in the boat, and he says to them, listen, disciples, you must beware of the leaven of Herod and the Pharisees. And they go like this. Hmm. Right, what about the loaf? What about the loaf? Who didn't bring the loaf of bread? You know, that's what the disciples are like all the way through. They're not even listening to what he's saying. And Jesus knows that at different points. I would have ditched them years ago. And yet Jesus loves these guys. He cares about these guys. And keeps showing these guys patience, even when they definitely don't deserve it. And then at the end of the Gospel of Mark, we see Jesus, having been unjustly tried, whipped, tortured, scourged, a whole battalion put a crown of thorns on the Saviour's head, they put a purple cloak around him, they start beating him around the head. If you're God, then prophesy who just did that to you. And after they crucify him, as Jesus hangs on a cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I once got told as a kid that the measure of character is not primarily how someone acts. It's how they react. And that stuck with me all my life. Measure somebody's character is not primarily what they do in the day-to-day of life. It's what they do when things are difficult. How they react when things aren't great. That's the measure of character. Well, look then at Jesus' character. Crowds aren't interested in him. They're for the wrong reasons. Disciples, idiots, not listening to him. Whipped, beaten, scourged on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Is that the character of a liar or a lunatic? Or is that the character of God, the one who he always claimed to be? Later on then in the Gospel of Mark, we see evidence piece number four, namely his conquest of death. I mean, one of the real cornerstones of Christianity is that Jesus not only died on a cross, but three days later he rose again. And accordingly then, as you go through the Gospel of Mark, as we get there later on, which will probably be for sovereign grace about a year's time, you know, when we actually get there, we will find that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, go to the tomb, and the tomb is opened, and Jesus is not in it. The stone has been rolled away, the tomb is empty, and Mark tells us it is empty because Jesus has risen again. He was dead, but now he is alive. It's one of the claims of Christianity. And of course, like any big claims, there are various conspiracy theories that come with them as to what really happened. So sometimes people say, well, I I think it's simple. I don't think Jesus had actually died. I think that's why he wasn't there. He wasn't actually dead when he came off the cross. And you think, yeah, nice try. But no, I mean, that one is particularly not going to be true because for Roman centurions, they were professional executioners, okay? The reason why they're professional executioners is because it worked like this. If you take somebody down from a cross that isn't really dead, then you're going up there. So you take the time to make sure they're dead. 
which is why they stuck a spear in Jesus' side to ensure that the blood and water flowed separately, showing that he was dead. As they thrust a spear in his side, he didn't flinch because he was a corpse. He was dead. Another theory is that the disciples had stolen the body. You know, that's just not the case at all. Because actually, when you read the Gospels, you realize after Jesus was arrested and crucified, the disciples were freaking out. They were scared. Most of them fled. They were disillusioned. They still didn't understand what is it that was Jesus was doing there? What's happened now? What are we meant to do? They were confused. They were scared. They were disillusioned. And yet after seeing Jesus Christ post-resurrection, many of these men went to be martyred for the faith. On this claim, Jesus Christ has risen. We saw him. Some of them were crucified after that. Some of them were crucified upside down. Others were sawn in half. They were martyred for the faith, unwilling to move on this issue. Jesus is alive. They went from disillusioned to martyrdom. Why would you do that if you stole the body? If you knew the whole thing was a hoax? You wouldn't. The third idea is that the authorities had stolen the body. That they had done it. Well, this is the least probable of all because post-resurrection, the disciples started to cause a massive stir again. That was the very thing they were trying to quell. They were trying to stop Christianity. They were trying to stop everybody talking about Jesus. And so after, after he rose again and all the disciples are up in arms saying, listen, we saw him. People are starting to come out again to the disciples on their thousands and their masses to hear about Jesus again. If I'm the authorities at that point and I've stolen the body, I'm going to go, yeah, nice try, boys. Here he is, still dead. That would have quelled Christianity there and then. But they never did. No body was produced because they didn't have it. And they didn't have it because Jesus Christ, I believe, really did rise from the dead. Jesus appeared to his disciples, or 12 of them, not just once, but on 11 different occasions. And in addition to them, he appeared to over 550 people who saw him and recognized him. And when you read the Gospels, it's written in such a way as if to say, hey, listen, he appeared to loads of people. Go and ask him. Go talk to him. You tell me if we're lying. But no one ever did accuse him of lying. People started to realize he did rise again. This is incredible. Well, my friends, is that then the resurrection of a liar or a lunatic? Or is that the resurrection of the Lord, the one who he always claimed to be? And then number five, the fifth piece of evidence is his followers. And one of the most compelling pieces of evidence for me that Jesus is the Christ is the amount of evidence we have in Mark's Gospel and then in the book of Acts about the sheer number of people who, having encountered Jesus, go on to believe in him as their Lord and Savior, who go on to believe that he is the Christ and he's changed my life. People who spent time with Jesus, who heard Jesus' teaching, who saw his miracles, who encountered him after he rose again, or people who had heard of others who had spent time with Jesus and encountered his teaching and miracles and resurrection. People in their thousands began to believe. They began to believe that he really is the Christ. He really is the Lord. 
And their lives were completely changed at that moment. They believed that they had been forgiven of their sin and they were able to have a relationship with God. And they believed that heaven was their home. People were doing that on their masses. And in addition to them then, is the evidence of the lives of millions of people around the globe who have gone gone on to believe in the last 2,000 years, of which I am one. See, I've always gone to church since I was little. Didn't have any choice. I got dedicated like these kids on the stage today. I don't remember that too well, but I'm sure I did. I remember, I remember my parents telling me I did. And all the time I went to church, I never didn't go to church, but I didn't like church. I wasn't wrapped about church. I'm grateful that my parents took me, but the best thing about church was when the sermon stopped and you could go play football out the front. You know, that was the highlight of the whole service. And the reason why is because I thought Christianity was boring, I thought it was probably true-ish, but minimally I just thought it was irrelevant. What difference did it make to me in my life of what some dude did in Palestine 2,000 years ago? I just don't get it. What difference does it make to my life? And so as I got older into my teens years, I was kind of into it, but kind of into the world in a much bigger way. I was, as John Bunyan says, Mr. Facing Both Ways. Church on a Sunday, Sunday week in the world. I didn't know what I wanted But I was pretty sure I didn't want Christ. He was boring. He was irrelevant. But then as 20 years old, my life began to completely unravel. Through a series of events, I was really brought to my knees. I got engaged to a girl. It's usually how you're brought to a knees. Got engaged to a girl. Knew her six weeks. Thought, that's plenty of time. I love her. Six weeks before we went meant to get married, after I've left university, bought a house I can't afford, and took a car loan. Six weeks before we meant to get married, she calls it off. And my life came crashing down. Left uni, couldn't go back. Couldn't afford to go back. I've got a mortgage. I have no money. I barely have a job. And what was worse is it was so public I was in a church of 500 people by then. All the invites had gone out. Everybody knew what was going on. There was mutterings for people saying, do you really know her enough? Like, of course I do. And my life came crashing down around my eyes. I remember just one night in my bedroom by myself, just thinking, man, what is this all about? And I got out my Bible and started studying different books. I just started to have a hunger for, I've got to work out. Was all that my parents were telling me all those years true? Or what is it about? I remember buying a book about the Bible. didn't start with the Bible because that's cheating. Because that could be wrong. I bought a book about the Bible (laughs) to find out, is this really true? Can this really be relied upon? And, And I was amazed as I'm reading this book about the Bible that the Bible can really be relied upon. It's incredible. This isn't Chinese whispers, but there's thousands and thousands of manuscripts that show that this really was what was written all the way back then. And I started reading it, and all I'd really learned was Sunday school stories. And yet I started reading it and realized, man, this is, this is one story. From beginning to end, this is the greatest, this is mission impossible. This is a rescue mission of mankind screwing up and falling away from God himself, and God himself sending his son to die in our place so that we may have life again. That's what this book is about in essence. 
And as I began to read it, I gave my life to Jesus Christ and I was dazzled. I was affected. It wasn't just a mental ascent to, yes, I believe Jesus is the God. That sounds very lovely. It was, Jesus, Jesus is God. And that changes everything. God actually walked on the earth that he breathed out and made. It changed everything for me in my life. I realized for the first time, I'm forgiven of all my screw-ups in my life. I've been reconciled to the one who made me. I now have a relationship with God, which is real. And I know that heaven is going to be my home, not because of my behavior, but because of the death of Jesus Christ in my place, because of his behavior. And I'm just one of thousands across the world who put their faith in Jesus Christ and had their lives changed by Jesus Christ. And so... Were these millions of people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior affected by a liar or a lunatic? Or have they had their lives changed by the one who really is God, who really is the Lord? Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's, his famous detective, was a man named Sherlock Holmes. And I'm going to employ Sherlock Holmes to help you a little in this moment. This is what Sherlock Holmes advises. He says, when you've eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. When you've eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Well, my friends, I want to encourage you, and I submit to you, this is the truth. Peter got it right. But who do you say that I am? You are the Christ. You're God. You're the Lord. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the one that breathed out the earth. You're the King of kings and Lord of lords. You are the Christ. You know, maybe you're here today, and this raises a whole load of questions for you. (laughs) Sorry about that. If this raises a whole load of questions for you, listen, we're a church that likes taking questions. We'd love to talk to you more about your questions. Come and ask us. Come and ask me or Patrick or Brendan over here. We'd love to take your questions and spend some time with you. These guys will get a coffee with you. I'll get a beer with you. You know, we can chat about your questions. We've got a book for you on the way out today. It's a book called How Good Is Good Enough? And that may answer some of your questions as well. And we'd love to invite you. And of course, we do call it Introducing Jesus. That will just tell you over four weeks a bit more about this Jesus that we're talking about here. And how he has come to the earth to change people's lives. If you've got questions, keep asking them. Ask the people who brought you. We want to take your questions. But maybe you're here today and for the first time, you actually believe. As you examine this evidence presented by Mark, you come away and say, you know what, I think this is true. I believe this. Well, my friends, I want to encourage you then. Romans 10 verse 9 says, For if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. That's what I did when I was 20 years old. It changed my life. I began to confess Jesus as, the, as God as the King, as Lord, as Christ, believing He really is God incarnate. And I truly believed in my heart. 
that he died in my place and rose again as my ransom. He paid the price for me so that I could be reconciled to God and so that I could be forgiven and so that I could know heaven as my home. If you really believe then that Jesus is the Son of God, then put your faith in him. Give your life to him. And know what salvation really is. You will not look back. You will not look back for a moment. And if you do that, let us know. Because we'd love to disciple you and help you. And help you in your new walk with Jesus Christ. And for the rest of you, maybe you're here today and this is your story. Well, my friends, live in the good of it. Jesus Christ is alive and well. He's seated at the right hand of the Father and one day he's coming back. Death was arrested for you through his incredible work. So live in the good of it. Live in the good of him. And may all glory go to him. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I thank you for the way you reveal yourself. You're the one who alone can open blind eyes. We can't do it. No teacher, no preacher can do it. No apologetic can do it, but you can do it. And Lord, we thank you that you are the God who opens blind eyes. You opened ours. And so, Lord, even as we sing now, would we be affected by who you really are? And would it change our lives? In Jesus' name, amen.